Just feeling a little, little. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number fifty-nine. Try to bury it a little bit. I'm Market Maker. I'm your co-host Ray, aka All Day Ray, aka Chateau Raymond, and I'm joined here by my whimsical co-host, former Market Maker, twenty years and current day retail trader, a man never worried about the outcome, only worried about his income. A man who rocks such icy jewelry that he can direct traffic at night. I am talking about the gorilla of House Street, JJ. How's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man, and pumped up for our guest mm-hmm. today, who is a chief behavioral officer at Osprey Funds, a man who ran a long, short equity hedge fund, which focused on behavioral strategies, a man who was the director of marketing at Bank OZK, interactive editor at Yahoo Finance and executive editor at StockTwits. I'm talking about Mr. Prime Cuts, Dr. Phil Perlman. Dr. Perlman, how's it going? Ray, what's up, man? Incredible pleasure to be here. You guys do a great, I love, I love what you guys do. And so I'm so pleased to be here. Oh man, that means a lot uh, coming from you. You know, we had the first chance of like briefly meeting each other. Uh, you were a host for the Chips for Charity Poker Tournament uh, in support of our boy Troy Prince at Wall Street Bound. Shout out to him and everything that they're doing. Uh, you, you did a great job hosting the event. I know there's a lot of people coming in, coming out of stream. Uh, you're a real pro, man. Yeah, I, you know, I've done media for years. Yeah. And uh, I had a really ball with that. Plus, it's just a passion thing. As a matter of fact, I was trading texts with Troy today. We're going to try to uh, we're going to try to try to try to get try to get a, 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 an intern in uh, at Osprey funds uh, through him. Um, and if you guys don't know, um, and I'm just going to plug this. I don't even care. Troy runs a nonprofit. He runs it from his heart. It's called Wall Street Bound. He helps provide access to uh, minority, black and brown, uh, young people who are interested in finance, studying in finance. They have the brains, but they don't have the access that maybe, you know, my kids would, you know, growing up in the, you know, growing up in the, in the leafy burbs. Uh, I can, you know, I make a call, hey, in, you know, they don't have that. So he, that's what he does. And it is just God's work. Uh, Wall Street Bound, anybody interested? I know I'm plugging it, but check it out. Give some money. If you can hire an intern, hire an intern. Uh, Troy, Troy Prince is the man. He, he really is. He is. Two-time podcast guest we uh, enjoy having. I mean, the first time we had him on, Jay, when was it? That was year and a half-ish. Oh, there you go, yeah. And we just, I just love it because I, I got in the business the hard way, right? I, you know, I snaked my way in. So I know what it's like not having that degree and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's just a wonderful thing that he's doing. It's just beautiful. It is. Shout out to Troy Prince, Wall Street Bound. Just a reminder to the listeners, you guys like to trade alongside JJ, myself, and as supportive community traders, join us at microefutures.com, Dr. Perlman. Uh, interested, just uh, if you could give us a uh, brief overview of how you got involved in the finance space. Well, I um, I was a teacher, was my first job out of college. Okay. And then uh, I actually, I got an award, crazy enough. I got an award for teaching. That was like in the mid nineties. And I took that money and I opened a Daytech account, which was one of the very first brokers way back in the day. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but it was right. At, it was early. 
this was mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So it. like Microsoft, Intel, Cisco was very, very early there. And um, I just got caught up uh, in tra- I went back to school to study psychology and got caught up in the market, got caught up in the whole bubble thing, had a blast um, while I was earning my doctorate in psychology. And I was studying the market from a psychological point of view at the same time and just caught up in the bubble and then freaked out, you know, recognized. I remember coming home. As a matter of fact, I remember I was on internship in Rochester, New York. I come home and uh, I see Jeff Bezos on the cover of Time magazine. This was like late 99. Mm. And I was like, holy. And I was and I was I was actually deep studying bipolar disorder, which half of that is mania. And I was like, oh, my God, this whole thing is a mania. This is lunacy. This is craziness. And uh, got really bearish, got end of the world-ish. And I was, er, I, I was actually really lucky because I got out of the market. But then, you know, between December and March, you know, I, 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 the market like almost doubled again, you know. So yeah. it was like I felt like I was missing everything. But at the end, it came out great because I didn't lose all my money. I got out. Um, but that was my intro to behavioral finance. You know, it was with the heart, my own heart freaking beating like this. But I already was sort of an expert in psychology. So I got really, really interested in it. Came back to D.C., came back to New York, actually, followed my girlfriend then, now my wife, to Brooklyn. She was interning a year later than me. Met a guy who was running a hedge fund. He brought me in. Uh, he wanted to run behavioral strategies. We built that up. Uh, had a great time doing it. Um, and by that time, I was deep in, in finance and, uh, you know, didn't get out of that. Got out of that to starting like investing, got involved with stock twits. But I had a great time, learned a lot. I, 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 I was seeped in behavioral finance from very early on. And my angle was different. Most people in finance who are coming at behavioral finance are coming from economics into, into, into psychology. I was coming from psychology into economics and into finance. So I was coming, I was an expert in all that stuff that all the finance guys kind of read about in the textbook, but really didn't know. Right, right. Now, do you, do you feel like that gave, that was uh, the, an edge that you've had coming from that perspective? Uh, it, that was, it was huge. It was huge for me, but there was also a lot of luck involved. So mm-hmm. one of the hardest things is humility. Yeah. And mm-hmm. At the time, I had I didn't have it because we started the hedge fund almost at the bottom of the Nasdaq, you know, of the bubble pop, you know. So it was like the market crashed, you know, in two thousand, bear market, and then coming out of it uh, in '02, and we're starting this fund, and you know, so we really caught the bottom, and our model was a psychological, was a behavioral model. Uh, yeah. It was uh, post earnings announcement drift. With a, with a sort of a, with a, uh, with a fundamental overlay, overlay. And we were just lucky because uh, post-announcement drift is great in a recovery because you find all these small cap stocks that are undercovered and they beat by 19 cents. And then the next quarter they beat by 28 cents because of, it's underreaction is really the behavioral term. So it was a recovery. So we got really, you know, looking back, then I thought I was a genius. Look, looking back, we were just in the right place. We had the right model at the right time, not because we anticipated anything. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's a huge thing. What you mentioned about the humility is like, like it's hard for people to recognize the luck in their success, and I think just identifying that and being aware of that is uh, beneficial in many aspects. Uh, doctor, we we've we've talked to many different people on the podcast. I mean, we're we're sixty episodes in. I've I've never talked to someone who've mentioned behavioral strategies, and maybe this is something I'm ignorant of. Is this something that's uh, widely in, implemented behavioral strategies by hedge funds? Hundred percent. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of crossover. You have implemented behavioral strategies. You just don't know the mm-hmm. name of it. And I'll tell you something too. Speaking of humility. Um, all the, all the big words are also bullshit, right? <laughs> so you can read all the textbooks and there's people out there who understand there's people out there in academia and who understand all of the concepts and have written the textbooks and they have zero clue what they're talking about. They wouldn't know, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know, uh, they wouldn't know a woman flirting with them if, 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 if she freaking uh, you know, booped them right on the nose. You know what I mean? Like real life, they have no idea. And so there's just a million people. So the words really don't matter. The studying helped because it helped me model, but people have it or they don't. There's some people who are socially astute or they're not. The big words don't really matter that much. So the things you know about are momentum, mm. positive feedback loops. Yeah. And freaking, you know, something's going up. It has mm-hmm. a tendency, you know, there's trends. That's all you can trace all of that stuff. There's, 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 there's research that uh, delineates all of that stuff. Right. And, uh, and so you could find all of that, all of that stuff in the journal of finance going back the last, you know, really the last 40 years and, you know, 30 years, but really, you know, the reason I say 40 years is because Kahneman and Tversky published prospect theory 42 years ago kind of the beginning you know that's like loss aversion people hate losing yeah uh, more than they love winning that that was kind of the you know like if you're looking for a big bang it goes back further than that but that's kind of it but really the 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 big the the jargon doesn't mean anything you know a lot about it and and really you know a ton about behavior if you look at charts at all because charts are really just price behavior Mm -hmm. and so the behavior of the market is just price and, you know, investor behavior is really just buy, sell, hold. There's three behaviors, <laughs> you know, there's emotions, you freak out and there's uh, cognition, you think about it, but really there's only three, three behaviors that you could possibly have. Yeah. Yeah. Co- coming from the background that you did uh, from uh, expert in psychology, when you first experienced the markets, it, was it that perspective that really intrigued you? Like the, because it does for me, like, and not that I have the same background that you do, but just the psychological aspects of trading is uh, really intriguing to me. I assume you feel the same way. Incredibly fascinating and useful in some instances. Um, it can be great for self-awareness. Yeah. But it's very, uh, it can be used as a, as a, as a tool of uh, sort of self-deception. Mm-hmm. You could fool yourself with concepts. And so really it boils down to a few very, very simple things that you don't re- really need to write a textbook about. T- taking really good care of yourself and having your mind in the game and your, and your, and your, and your, and your body be prepared uh, when you go in. 
having a strategy that you stick to and having emotional control. Those are more important than any words I could, I mean, we could pontificate all day and you could ask me about, you know, theories all day long, but really those things are all that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that was something I was going to ask you about as well is what, what, what's your take on like financial theory versus it being applicable to practice? I think that there's a few things that really matter a lot, like I was saying. Yeah. And so financial theory, I don't think means that much, although knowledge is important. I mean, you know, you do realize that there's a lot of just informational things. Uh, you know, you talk about one of the, you know, sources of great edge, especially among some of the greatest hedge funds of all time, is an informational edge. Uh, I think a psychological edge, a behavioral edge is also incredibly, incredibly uh, important. And um, so I think it really, I think it's, oh, I, you know, I think we live in an age of overreaction. Mm -hmm. We have a tendency to overreact about everything. I mean, just look back at GameStop a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. It was the fucking end of the world. Mm -hmm. And it was nothing. That was a blip. Remember, people exactly. were talking about the fall of the financial system. Overreaction. <laughs> By the way, it was a blip, right? It was nothing. Exactly. Nobody cares. Everybody was on to the next two days later. Now, exactly. today, this morning was the end of the world. The freaking spy finished higher today, right? Am I wrong? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't watch every tick, but I, think, I, I did see that. I do. But at 9.31 this morning, it was the end of the world. The bull market was over. And, you know, they were talking about, uh, oh, we're going to have to get, uh, we're going to have to, you know, do something with, you know, with uh, interest rates or monetary policy, something. I don't even know what it was, but it's all noise. We live in an age of overreaction. And that is a behavioral concept. And I'm not going to get all wordy about it. But this idea is that we have this tendency to overreact like crazy. It's, 10 times worse right here. As a matter of fact, if I was trading uh, actively right now, I would be looking to take the other side of overreaction. Like that would be my bread and butter. Like it, 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 it's, a, it's a very fertile period for that. Like whatever's, whatever's going on that people are overreacting to, look for ways to bet against that. Remember Robin Hood was, remember, uh, you know, people were, people were saying Robin Hood was done. They were going to have, they, they, you know, they were in a, 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 a they were going to have a problem with their own uh, cash position and liquidity and their risk management was terrible. And that weekend happened and Monday they were going to be insolvent. Oh my God. If you were lucky enough to be one of those people, one of those VCs to get to throw more money. Oh, exactly. Morning, you killed it. Exactly. And you're going to have a five bagger. Yeah. Those guys are going to Yeah. They were, they were trading those VCs that morning when uh, 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 Robin Hood was probably a little panicky too. Just imagine if you're in it. Just imagine that yeah. guy Vlad. He's like, fuck, I just built this incredible business and now it's crumbling. He was probably overreacting too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. VCs come in. They've been through this 20 million times. <laughs> their, heart, their resting heart rate is like 50 nothing. You know, <laughs> they're like, boop, boop. Beautiful. And they're Beautiful. like, they just, they just write the check and they're going to go public later this year and it's going to be a five-bagger for them. Well, let me, let me ask you this, doctor, since, since we're talking about it, how, how does one prevent themselves from having an overreaction? Like, like what, what are things that you say to yourself or how do you recognize within yourself that you could be maybe a little irrational here? There are some people watching this today who are in the wrong business mm. because 
there are some people are just reactive and there's mm. nothing that they can they, they 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 you can move let's say we're looking at a 10 point scale you can change yourself psychologically you can move from a 5 to a 7 or maybe an 8 maybe a 9 but you can't move from a 1 to a 10 so if you are by personality characterologically from the time you were born there's a stability if you are a highly emotional reactive person there's not much you're going to be able to do you never you you, you don't you don't have the raw material to be a great trader you could be you could you could move from a 2 to a 5 you could be maybe a fair trader but you're never going to be michael jordan you know what i mean i mean michael jordan was you know you talk about he was born with a very high kinesthetic intelligence, right? His movement intelligence, he was a genius, right? Mm -hmm. He was born with that. So he was born at, let's say a seven or an eight or a nine. And then he worked real hard and got to 10 plus because he already had that. So there's a certain segment out there. Sorry, sorry to say this to you. The sooner you realize it, the better it's going to be for you because you're losing and you're going to continue to. If you're highly reactive, it's going to be a long road. It's going to be hard because the market is very, very emotional and you just can't, there, there's no exercises that you can do. You know what I mean? I will never be able to run a two hour ma, uh, 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 marathon, right? Two hour and five minute marathon. I just never will. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll run a three mile, a three hour, probably not. Maybe I'll run a four hour, definitely, but not a, not a two hour. I just don't have that physical gift and age and everything, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's some people, that's a huge point. Now, if you're in that area where, okay, you have some gifts, you, you, you have a good uh, visual spatial intelligence, can look at price behavior and see patterns, um, you're good with numbers, um, you're pretty calm emotionally, you're, you know, your resting rate is pretty chill, you don't get you know, you don't have arguments with your girlfriend and you don't whatever, you're pretty chill. Um, you can move that needle. So let's say you're, a, you're, you're born at a six or seven, you can move to a nine. Now, here's some of the things. Taking care of your body, taking care of yourself, taking care of your physical self, your mental self and your spiritual self. Huge, right? Because you get that place where those types of things make you better, make you stronger as a person. If you are, if you are very healthy, if you are lean um, and you take care of yourself and you eat well and you don't drink too much and you move your body every day and you do some type of resistance, you're going to have, that affects your brain, right? So that affects your ability to focus. Well, does trading take focus? A lot of it. It affects your emotional regulatory system. Thousand percent, right? Is that, is that important? hundred percent. Meditation is incredible. Uh, meditation, you know, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, you're getting all freaking Buddha shit, right? You, could just be, <laughs> you know, you could just take a walk and think about things in the morning. That's, that's like my, that's my, my gig. That's where I have ideas. I'm meditating and I put on music and walk early in the morning, you know, with the dog and, uh, things, things fly, you know, kind of just flow in and out of my mind. I get really relaxed. I do a little breathing. 
that is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, practice, practice and experience. You go through something and you deal with it well and you are rewarded for that. You are conditioning yourself. So the more times you go through something, the first time you, 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 you lose money in a trade, the first times you lose money in a trade, you might lose this much money, you're on tilt, right? You do it again. So it's like practicing anything you practice over and over and again, just building a muscle for that. So experience is incredibly important. Also having a strategy, having a strategy is incredibly important. You have to have an exit. Anytime you get into a trade, you guys know that bad things happen when you don't or when you don't follow it. Mm -hmm. One other thing, community and mentorship, having people around you who know what they're doing, who've been there before that you trust, that you can go to, that you can copycat, that you can learn from, that you can ask anything who will tell you straight, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, they'll bust your chops. If you have, they won't just shine you just because they don't want conflict that's trust to be able to tell somebody, Hey, you fucked up right there. You got to do this different. I'm comfortable. I, you trust me enough that I can tell you that I trust you enough that I can tell you that, that the, all of those things are key. I know I just hit like five things. I don't even remember what I said, but I think I hit a lot of them right there. No, you, you, you crushed it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah you nailed it. Nailed it. I mean, you, you prefaced this before you came on. You're like, Hey, my, my creative uh, juices are flowing. Uh, yeah, this is beautiful. Lying. You're not lying doc. That was- I want to talk about one thing that you made me made oh. me think of, and oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this. Uh, I'm gonna write about this on Sunday. Okay. I just thought about it this morning on my walk, as a matter of fact, and I wrote down I wrote this down: embracing the uncomfortable brain, right? Embracing the uncomfortable brain. So we all know that, and we it, we we live in a society right now where we are, where obesity is exploding, right? Half of the population is overweight, obese, or morbidly obese, more than half. It's not a good situation. And it's called, there's multiple factors. It's tragic. It is what it is. It increases the disease in our culture. There is a corollary to that. And this is sort of this mind body uh, relationship here, right? So, you know, being comfortable physically is a problem. When we just sit on the couch, we eat Funyuns, we watch Friends reruns, we don't do anything, that is not good, right? We know that though, like that is kind of part of conventional wisdom. You got to get up off your butt, it's got to be uncomfortable, you got to lift heavy things, you got to move your body, run sprints, even just walking when it's cold out cold showers are healthy. All of these uncomfortable things are great for your body. It's the same exact thing for your brain. There's a parallel process here and there's definitely a connection. Your brain, when, when, you, when your brain is comfortable, that leads also to uh, laziness, sloth, sloppy thinking, inability to be creative. So you have to work that brain every day. And it co it, it, and it's it, it's it's in it's it's across multiple modes, right? It's hey, what are the things you're reading? What are the things that you're you're thinking about and focusing on every day? Are these the same things that you've been doing 
for 30, 20, 30 years and you're doing them the same way, that's sitting on the couch. The, you know, that the metaphor is sitting on the couch there. Music is one for me. Are you listening to the same music that you were listening to 25 years ago? Well, what is that doing to the grooves in your brain? You know what I mean? Like if you listen to Steely Dan and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm aging myself right here. I'm pinning myself. Well, I'm right there with you. I'm right there Dude, with you. Gorilla, you're right there with me. But if oh, you're, yeah. you're still listening to Steely Dan and the Grateful Dead, and you've been listening to the same five albums for the last 30 years, <laughs> listened to them 500 million times, what uh, is going to the grooves in your brain that is sort of that uh, right brain, creative, expansive musical part that is tied, guess what? It's tied to your visual spatial system. Music is visual spatial. You know, it's auditory, but it's also visual spatial. You look at the notes, right? Look at, you know, look at uh, uh, GarageBand and how the, all those waves are doing this shit. That's literally, right? Yeah. It's visual spatial. That's why people who are strong in math are strong in music, right? That goes together. Mm. It's pattern recognition and all that stuff. So, you know, lazy body, lazy brain, same thing. So there's a parallel there. Uh, we got to work it. So you got to keep working it. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. Behaviorally, there is a, uh, from a conditioning point of view, from how we learn and how we're trained, there's a catch 22. Because when we're young, we can get away with so much. We can not sleep. We can drink. We can party and not do anything for two weeks and we don't gain any weight and we don't get in our brains are still like ready to go. You know, and, and so when you go to college, you, you learn the, all the wrong things. And then unlearning those things is a very, is a very challenging thing. And for some people never, unlearn, you know, some people get stuck in that for their whole lives. They never unlearn it. Well, you're on fire, Doc. I love it. It's great. I've read that one of your favorite guys is Lao Tzu. I, I think I'm pronouncing it the right way. Uh, credited author of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, one of the, personally for me, one of the most impactful books uh, on my life. Um, just speak to the book. Why do you love it so much? Why do you love him as a character in the book? Well, Here's the thing, religion, spirituality and religion is a really tough nut, right? Because we know so much. We know, we all know that the jig is up, right? They turned over the cards. We know that myths are myths and that the literal interpretation of these stories are, I'll be, I'll be kind to anybody out there who's a fundamentalist are questionable, right? We know, we know that there's not a literal interpretation of things that happened, right? We know that all of those stories are stories and that they're metaphors. And we have science now. We know that the world is not 5,000 years old, right? Mm -hmm. In addition to that, all religions have a morality packed into, or most of the Western religions especially, have morality that sort of come packed into everything, right? You know, what is the basis of Judeo-Christian uh, Christianity uh, is the Ten Commandments, yep. right? It's we're starting with the commandments, man. You know, we're commanding you to behave a certain way. It's authoritarian from ground, ground zero from the beginning. So that is not palatable to me 
personally. It's just, I'm calling bullshit, right? And so for me, uh, Lao Tzu is really on the sort of the opposite end of that, where it's really non-judgmental. And he's just sort of, you know, laying out some, some things that are, that are wisdom. And he is talking about flexibility. He's talking about uh, youth or the youthful mind, the childlike mind. These are all themes we already just discussed. Yeah. 15 minutes, you know, five minutes ago, talking about keeping your brain fresh, talking about keeping your body fresh. Um, so he is flexible, supple, adaptive, non judgmental. That resonates with me uh, profoundly. Yeah. And it's uh, all qualities that make a good trader that are useful for trading. And it was funny, it's like, and maybe, Doctor, some of my pursuit of, um, you know, the Tao Te Ching and other Eastern philosophies was probably rooted in me wanting to gain an edge, honestly, especially when I like, it was really like grinding poker, but, uh, it really did help. And then not only that, it's, uh, into my personal life as well. So, uh, I was really, uh, good to see that. That was one of your favorite guys. I'm like, hell yeah, man. That's, uh, and so how do you apply that in your everyday life? Man, I, I think um, just being like my way, like the way I see the world or how my opinion um, is like there's other way, like just to be flexible. Right. Like, like just to be aware of my uh, own shortcomings to be. I, I think I think I became more of I put myself not being in a knowing standpoint into like getting into that beginner's mind what they call the Zen mind, beginner's mind. Taking myself more to a, a humble standpoint, taking things as they are, not how I think they should be. Um, yeah, I mean, at least off the top of the head. Reality. <laughs> right. Not how I was like, oh, Reality. Well, I deserve this. Right. Huge. And in this day and age, we are, uh, I guess it's always been the same. It's not, it's not just this day and age, but we, uh, spend a lot of energy trying to avoid pain and reality is very painful. And so we remove ourselves from reality. And what that does is set up this feedback loop of experiencing more pain. Um, right. You know, you could call it uh, neurosis. Even you make the same mistakes over and over again, even though they hurt you. You see that in the market too, right? You see people do that all the time. I know it's so hard. Um, that is the definite, you know, that's, uh, 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 Maurer's definition of, of neurosis is making the same mistake repeatedly, even though you're getting the, you know, even though you're getting negative results. So it's really hard. So embracing reality is incredibly difficult. Um, you'd have to embrace so many difficult things. You have to embrace your limitations. You have to embrace death. You have to embrace, uh, the, the, the imperfections of those around you that you want to be perfect. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I a hundred percent agree that that is a huge component. Um, uh, is sort of, it's a reality basis. Um, one of the, uh, one of the translators of, uh, the Tao, um, the, the science fiction author, Le Guin, mm -hmm. she 
made a comment about that. She made a comment about the Dow, about the anarchists embracing the similar tenets and about it really being all about just reality. So even though it seems like it's very uh, mysterious and uh, obtuse or not obtuse, but, but, but cryptic. Yeah. Yeah. It's really very much rooted in reality, which is a incredible uh, sort of dialectic, you know, incredible combination. For sure. And I think that's just like the search of what I like, what, what, like, what is it? Like, what, what is this we're living? You know, like that's been my search. And I think another thing, Dr. Two, I thought of which on a personal level, what's helped me, I think as a parent, um, to my son and like what really stuck out to me in that book when he was talking about uh, the best way to and I think he was either talking as a parent or I think like to society as a whole like the best way for a ruler to have them rebel is to give a lot of rules right it's like, it's like like what you say like you the things you give off will give off the opposite reaction at times whereas if you if you give people space they'll act more accordingly or they won't rebel you know I you know I'm paraphrasing but that, that was the, uh, the essence of it. No, you're dead on about that. Yeah. The ruler who is uh, has the hard hand um, and makes a lot of rules, there'll be a lot of rules broken. And, yeah. and there's a difference between that and not being present. So if you're present, but if you're present with a, with a frame that is um, non-authoritarian, and that is true. There's so much research actually that supports that, not only in parenting, but it, very strong there, but also in organizational psychology. So in, in large organizations, in co uh, corporate situations, that those who are leaders, the ones who are non-authoritarian, you know, drive better results and greater respect over time. There's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. No, good stuff. So I, I got a great theory about parenting. Yes. Yes. Go go. There. You want to go there. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. I love it. Yeah, let's go. Okay. So, um, so there was this guy, Stephen Mitchell, who was, uh, and this is really the way I try to think of everything. First off, there's this one idea. This is an idea that comes from this guy, Winnicott, where all you really do, all you really have to be is good enough. Like you don't have to be a perfect parent. And as a matter of fact, going back to the judgment, you know, not being non-judgmental, He's basically giving you permission to not be perfect. Like that's kind of his thing. Mm -hmm. He was saying, all you have to do is be good enough. You're going to mess up. You're going to do stupid things. You're going to be, you're going to be a dick when you should have been cool. And you're going to be cool when you should have been a dick. And you're going to get, you know, you're going to, you're going to do it. But as long as you're good enough, as long as you're, as long as you get it right enough, you know, whatever that percentage is, you're fine. The kid's going to be all right. So you don't have to be a hundred, you don't have to be, you don't have to make, you don't have to say the right thing all the time. You don't have to do the right thing all the time. You just got to be good enough. You got to be present and you got to get it right. That's one. Then the next thing, and this is Stephen Mitchell. This guy was such a genius, right? He talked about there being two ends of a spectrum. The one is when you tell the kid what they have to do when you're setting limits, right? Sometimes you have to set limits. If there's a, you know, a, your four-year-old is playing with matches or playing with a stove, you got to take the matches away. You have to set that limit. If they're running out into the ocean and they're three, you have to go and grab them and say, no, you can't run into the ocean. There's moments like that. And then on the other side of the same spectrum, at the other end, there is permissiveness and expansion. 
let the kid do, let the kid play. If that same kid, that same four-year-old is sitting there making a mess with himself in the sand, sitting up on the beach a little bit, getting it in his pants, putting it in his hair all over the place, there you let him go. And so really the parenting is just both of those and getting those right more times than not, you know, good enough right. where you just, you let them go when they, when you should let them go and you tighten them up when you, you know, you, you set limits when you should set limits. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't really get those crossed, you right. know, you're going to be good enough. Yeah. Stephen Mitchell, man. Awesome shit. Dialectics. I mean, I made it like understandable, but you know, mm. it was a dialectics. Oh. You know, he was talking about narcissism and the dialectics of blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. But that's the basic idea. That's all I try to do. I, and, and, you know, like that's that's my whole model right there. And I love it. And it's digestible and it makes a lot of sense. It, it's simplified. Right. And I, I think a lot of the best uh, concepts are able to like, uh, you know, like we talked about before, like people like can pontificate all they want. But I think a lot of times it's like simplifying these things, making it digestible so we can make it practical um, in our everyday lives. Uh, Doc, since we're kind of down this road, I, um, I just want to ask you something I've been talking with people recently and something I believe in um, is it's like the concept. And I think it's a Zen koan is how you do one thing is how you do all things. So do, do you and like, I guess, bringing this to the market, do, do you believe it's like oh, the, the market will kind of reveal to you yourself, maybe your strengths, your weakness, weaknesses, et cetera? Um. I think that that is often true, but not always. Mm -hmm. I think it's often true. I think in general, it's very, very true that the way that you approach anything, it generalizes uh, because it, that's your personality, that's your character. However, with markets, there's a wrinkle. Okay. And the wrinkle is fortune and risk because you know the definition of the market is that you don't know what's going to happen i mean you're a poker player right and i'm, I'm guessing you probably are familiar with annie duke and uh she wrote a really interesting book i forget the name of it but one of the concepts that she talked about uh was resulting was where people have this tendency to look at what happens mm -hmm. and judge the process based on the result. Right. Where in reality, the process is the important thing. If you're doing things right and you're doing it over and over and over and over and over again the right way, you're going to get there. And I have no question about that. No question. However, the market, like poker, is risk under uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. You could play a hand perfectly. You could have great cards and you could have a horrible beat because you don't know what that next card is going to be. Even if the odds are in your favor strongly and you know it, that is the market also. And so there is this availability bias. There's this tendency for us to make a big deal out of things that are very, very striking, right? And the news loves that. Yeah. And so a lot of sometimes, in fact, often, in fact, I'll give an example. 
um, people win big that do a lot of things wrong. You know, um, there was a book called The Greatest Trade Ever uh, about, uh, I think it was a guy named Paulson, if I recall. Yeah, the mortgage trade. The mortgage trade. Crushed it. Crushed it. But guess what? That was, you know, was that, you know, was that skill? Was it luck? Was it hard-headedness? Was it just not being flexible when you're supposed to be flexible? Because his, you know, after the book was written. Exactly. He got killed, exactly. right? He got killed in gold or whatever. Yeah, exactly. The guy's rich. Doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know what happens? Well, you yeah. know, when hedge funds blow up, they go to France for the month, right? That That's right. what you do when you blow up a hedge fund. You come back, your prime raises you more money. Right. So it's not, so so what you're saying, I, I agree with, and I think it's true in 95% of all of us, but I think there's a 5% that is a, that is a, 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 an outsized part, especially when we're talking about markets where sometimes people don't do things the right way and it pays off for them uh, incredibly well. Um, and then, you know, that's what happens. So I think as a tendency, I think for us, you know, it's true most of the time, but I think there are, there are sure. very notable exceptions. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's what I was talking to someone about today, just to comment on what you were saying about, uh, mentioned what Amy Duke said in that, you know, not being results oriented, being process oriented. And it's, it's so hard to fight. I, and I still find it myself, even when like I go back and review my trades is to not review them with the bias of hindsight. Right. Uh, it, it's a hard, concept uh do you have any tips for people out there on uh, i guess combating you know hindsight bias or like me for example going back to review my trades uh because i can only make a trade based on the information i have at the time right like i know things now uh in hindsight uh do you got any comments i would say two things i would say get in there and do it don't don't you know do it small but do it mm -hmm. And number two, find people around you that you trust who are doing it right. People like you and people like, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Brett is freaking great at this. Oh, By the way, he's a psychologist too. I don't know, yeah, I don't know if you guys are aware of that. That guy, he's also a clinical psychologist. Um, find people that you trust and become students of them. Be humble, humbly students of them and learn soak it all in and also do you're going to get wrecked trading is very very hard it is um you're gonna you're gonna have bumps on the road there uh that would that would be really the that would be you know the the the, the way to really learn is to learn from people who are doing it doing it well doing it successfully for an extended period of time how long how long have you been uh, how long you've been involved in the market uh, you're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got uh, going on uh, two years. So, you know, I, I had the background in poker, um, which I think prepared me well. But yeah, about uh, about like a year and a half ish, two years in the market. And so how long how long were you playing poker? Oh, seriously. Close, close to a, oh, close to a decade. Uh, eight, eight, eight and a half years. Yeah. Very, very, very similar muscles. Right. I mean, the, the uh, configuration of the two are emotionally. Yeah. Uh, that uncertainty dynamic I was talking about before 
you know, judgment, uh, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty, uh, emotional, um, playing against other people who are very skilled. Yeah. Uh, so there's, it's a very similar muscle. So you were already, you, you were already working that muscle for almost 10 years before you even got involved with markets. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, honestly, I felt very prepared. No, I mean, it's prepared me, uh, immensely for trading. And I think like definitely different from a lot of newer people. Like I was prepared mentally already. I I've, I've dealt with swings, uh, and with money plenty of times. Right. So like the whole emotional side, I didn't need to train. I just needed to learn the technical aspects of trading. And also let me say this, this is really important. He's one of the few newer traders that I've ever coached who understood risk management. And that came from the poker background. Right. And in trading, there's so many people who blow their load because they have no concept of risk management and you see it over and over and over again. I just, uh, Really quickly, I, I remember what you said something about um, this is something I want to bring up just because the way these markets are over and heated. And, and when you were talking with JC, you said, how long has it been since we've had a 10% correction and how we are mentally unprepared for that? Um, if you could just speak about that a little bit, because I don't like to be a doom and gloom guy, but I'd like people, I always like people to be prepared when we go into battle. And, uh, you know, we are a bit soft these days. This goes back to what I was talking about before about overreaction, right? Markets have a tendency to oscillate between overreaction and underreaction. And currently, and, I, and there may be a cultural component, this may be very sticky. We are living in an age of overreaction. You can see it, you see it every day. People are outraged daily about the smallest things. Yes. Somebody says, you know, a celebrity says something on, on, on <laughs> social media and they get canceled and there's outrage. Yeah. Horrible. You would think it was cancer, right? I mean, it's just everything. Oh, yeah. And so we are living in an age of overreaction. And so it's really, uh, you know, you can make the case that that's sort of a put underneath the market because... Mm -hmm. You know, if everybody overreacts so fast, like this morning we were talking exactly. about, market was off this morning. People were freaking out. Oh my God, close yeah. the market. Um, <laughs> that is a put because you get to capitulation very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And we have been seeing that. I think it began, you could probably trace it back further, but for me, it began with 9 11. Yeah. Because one thing that traumatic experiences, uh, do is they increase emotional reactivity, especially true. when it's not fully processed. That's true. And so you had this event happened. It was a major event in the history of this country. We still haven't fully dealt with it. Um, and it was, you know, we were living in this world where everything was stable. All of exactly. that happening was all over there and over there. Yeah. We hadn't had a war in years. We hadn't been attacked on our old, own soil since like Pearl. since freaking Pearl Harbor. How many exactly. years? Yeah. You know, 50 was two, two, more than two generations or whatever. So that was a cataclysmic event in the sort of cultural fabric, emotional, you know, the uh, emotional uh, uh, mind, you know, the makeup, the schema, emotional schema. Mm. That was the beginning. 
Then we had a war. Then we had a uh, global financial crisis. And so we had these series of events and our, we were not prepared for them uh, as, a, as a society. And I think that was the beginning of sort of this wild, oh, okay. Okay. emotional. And um, I think that now, and then, you know, throw fuel in the fire with uh, social media, where it really just kind of uh, makes the world even smaller and True. news travel even faster. And I think you really have this just overreaction uh, society. And so I think that is the challenge of every single uh, market participant to not get caught up in that. That's really interesting that you mentioned 9-11 because that really screwed with my head because I had, you know, I was trading with the boys and, you know, I, you know, lost friends and it's just, um, it's just amazing how the trauma of that, even though I'm a Canadian and I was nowhere near it, but it was my people that got hit. Um, it really messed with my head. And the only way I could sort of get rid of it was stop watching news. And as soon as I stopped watching news and, you know, the cell phones and, and put that away. And I remember what you said uh, about turning off and taking two hours to step away. And I've been doing that ever since I read, uh, ever since, you know, you said that I've been doing that. I've tried it a couple of times. I'll just go and not even take a cell phone come back two hours later and I'll see the trade. Boom. I take it. It's done. It's beautiful. That it's clearing beautiful. of the head. It's just amazing. I really want to thank you for that. That's a beautiful thing. My pleasure. And basically he's talking about it. And I'll, ta I'll talk about it on two different levels, actually getting away from the tape, getting away from all noise is critically important to ourselves, whether we realize it or not. It's important to our emotional selves. It's important to our ability to think, it's really that walk I was talking about, the meditative meditation. It gives your it gives your it gives your body a chance to breathe. It gives your mind a chance to breathe. And when you come back, you have you're you're uh, uh, refreshed, and you are you have uh, uh, clarity, critical. And as a, and I would add to that, and I would say that given what our environment is like right now. Um, one day a week or two days a week, I strongly recommend that people get away from everything, you know, get away from uh, their phones, get away from the news. If you can do it, if you're not a journalist, journalists can't, but if you're not a journalist, Saturday, you know, Sabbath is a beautiful thing, right? There's a, there's a wisdom to Sabbath, right? If you get away from work, you, 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 you get together with the family, you have a good meal, you have a chance to reflect and meditate, you have a chance to rest. All of those things are critical. It's very hard to do that with the phone uh, in your hand. It's very hard to do that with news television on. It's very hard to do that. So, you know, Saturday, inter intermittent digital fasting is a thing. You know, you, you can do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I remember I, I, I had a quintuple bypass in 2012. And uh, at that time, I had three cell phones uh, because I had so many clients, Europe, Asia, North America. After the, after the heart attack and the bypass, uh, no cell phone for two years. And it's the calmest I've ever been in my life. It was freaky. It was just amazing. So that was great for you. Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah. You learned it. You had to do it by necessity, right? You almost died. Exactly. 
Yeah. I, well, I did die. I was dead for about three minutes, three, four minutes, <laughs> which was a trip. Yeah. It was, it was, tri- it was a trip. So you survived. Yeah. So you, you get away uh, and you kind of built that. You learned, you know, you got conditioned by actually having to do it and you did it and you benefit from it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Doc, I, uh, I picked out some quotes I, I found very impactful from your blog, Prime Cuts. Uh, that I wanted to read, and I wanted you to maybe expand a little bit um, on the quotes that I picked. Okay, uh, first one, uh, willpower is the war against our own nature. Right. So here's the thing. This goes for anything. This goes for any anything that you're trying to do, any discipline, uh, health, weight loss, um, becoming a master uh, trader or poker player, any endeavor. If you are fighting something to do something, if it is a matter of willpower, you're going to fail. Because the implication is that you are doing something that is against your nature. Right. If you are hungry all the time and you're dying to eat and you're dieting by watching calories, starving yourself, you're going to fail. You're going to you're going to you may lose 20 pounds, but guess what? You're going to put 25 right back on before you can blink your eyes. So what you want to do is and this goes back to the Dow. Also, this goes back to the idea of flexibility, suppleness, soft overcomes the hard, what you want to do is you want to become that thing, right? It's a very uh, Bruce Lee thing too. In fact, that's where Bruce Lee got it yeah. from Dow. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Totally. Yeah. Be like water. It's that, that's exactly I'll say 101 right there. Um, but the idea is that you want to embrace that. You want that. You want to say, I am that person. I'm a person who doesn't eat breakfast. I'm a person who eats protein. I'm a person who moves my body every day and shocks my body more days than not. That's who I am. It's not a matter of me struggling to do it. It's just who I am. It's not willpower at all. It's mindset, lifestyle. It's uh, 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 identity. It's identity. So I am that person. As a matter of fact, I was talking with somebody a couple of weeks ago who was struggling with, you know, uh, going, going back to what we were talking about, especially with the pandemic. The pandemic was one more trauma, by the way. So we've had this series over the last 20 years, just boom, 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 one thing every couple of years. Um, uh, somebody who was struggling with alcohol over the pandemic, they drank more and more and more. And, you know, we were talking about identity and I said to him, you know, you just, you just, instead of saying to yourself, I'm not going to have a drink, say to yourself, I'm not a drinker. So it's like more of an identity thing than a willpower thing. I don't have to resist the drink. I'm just not a person who drinks. That's not, that's not who I am. You say that to yourself enough times, you start believing it. You start acting that way. That's who you become. And so that is the idea. If you're trying to do anything by willpower, by forcing it, by, by, by forcing yourself to do something that isn't you, eventually you're going to fail. 
if you take that thing and, and, and fully commit and say, I am that thing, then it's not willpower, it's identity, uh, it's mindset, lifestyle, and you have a much greater chance uh, at success. Right, right. And I, I think it kind of, this kind of like leads into the next one I picked out. Um, you said uh, our behaviors and our thoughts are intric uh, intricately woven, shifting our thinking even a little affects our behavior, changing behavior even a little affects thinking. So this whole, I remember it was the, um, it's the triangle, right? Like you, well, one thing affects the other to the other. Could you just speak on that? I think it's a very powerful concept. This is huge. And, you know, there's a guy named Aaron Beck, who is the father of cognitive therapy. He's a genius. He's a hundred years old. Wow. I mean, shout out to him. He's, he's the man. As a matter of fact, I mean, I almost hate to say this, but when he does pass, he will be, you know, he'll be on the front page of uh, New York Times Magazine and he will be remembered as the most impactful psych, psych I think he's probably a psychiatrist, but the most impactful psycholo psychological mind mm -hmm. following Freud, maybe even greater. Now you don't even know his name, but his, he developed the, this cognitive model of uh, the mind. Um, as a matter of fact, this is very interesting. He is a, uh, he's the same generation as Kahneman Tversky, the fathers of behavioral economics. As a matter of fact, they both published their foundational works in 1979. That's how, you know, and they are both students of the cognitive revolution. Um, and so Beck developed, you know, he was like, he, he was a Freudian. He was an, an analyst and he was like, you know, this stuff does not, uh, you know, the, 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 the scientific methodologies that we're discovering these days, this does not, you know, the, the analytic thought of Freud and the neo-Freudians, it doesn't stand up to empirical validation in the laboratory. And he started developing these ideas and all of this other work was, 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 was being done in the area of, of, of cognition they call, called the cognitive revolution in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And he developed this model, uh, cognitive, mo really a cognitive behavioral affective model of, uh, of personality and of, of human development and, and uh, functioning. And the idea is, is that we have this environment that we're in, right? We have this world that we're living in. And within that world that we're living in, there's really three main components to our psychology, to our psyche. One of them is the way we think, right? Those are our thoughts. Those are the things that pop into our mind. Those are the core beliefs that we have. They're the things that pop into our mind when something happens, our automatic thoughts. And there are there are on the surface thoughts that we have. Like, oh, I'm thirsty. I'm going to have a drink of, of, of seltzer, right? Those are, that's cognitive. That's the thinking part of the triangle. Then there's the emotional, right? That's another end. That's how we feel, right? Oh man, I'm, I'm in this losing trade. Fuck, it's just gotta go back up. 
I'm going to, you know, I know my, my stop was 31. It's 3065 open. Uh, I'm not, I'm not selling, you know, and now all of a sudden it's a 2985 print and I'm, <laughs> ah! that's emotion. That's, exactly. that's the yeah. second corner of the triangle. Okay. And then the third corner of the triangle is what we do is our behaviors, right? What we do, what we do from the most mundane thing to the most profound thing. It was the thing that you were talking about before, how we do one thing, we do everything. The do. In the market, there's only three behaviors, right? There's buy, sell, and hold, but there's a million behaviors that we, that we do every day. There's habits that we have, which are really powerful. There's do we move? Do we not move? Do we sit on the couch? Do we uh, do things that are difficult? Do we not? There are you know, a, a, million, a million behaviors that we have every day, we act every day. And by the way, the only one of these three of this triangle that are directly observable mm -hmm. is behavior. So that gives a special place to price and buy, sell, hold in this whole model as it relates to investor behavior in markets. Behavior has a special place because it's observable. We can measure it directly. We don't have to take somebody's word for you. How do you feel today? You know, oh, I feel great. And meanwhile, you're miserable, right? Anybody can lie about how they feel. They do it all the time, but you can't lie about your behavior. You either freaking are still holding that thing at 28, 2890 print, or you sold it at, 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 at 3065 because it, it, you know, you got stopped out and, and, uh, you, and you had the discipline. Um, so anyway, you have those three, the way you think about things and the way you feel and the way you behave. Those things you could think, and this is Beck, this is a cognitive model. Um, and really he should have called it cognitive behavioral affective, but he kind of put thinking at the top, mm -hmm. you know, and his therapy was based on thinking, like he would challenge your thoughts. So, you know, you didn't get that one job. So you think you're a total failure. Let's take a look at that. You know, like that's how he would approach that, he would challenge that belief. You know, you're not a total failure just because you didn't get one job and you could challenge that into, you know, on a cognitive level. But those three things, you change one, the other two change, just like a triangle. You know, any, you change one angle of a triangle, the other two angles change. You change one side of a triangle, the other two sides change and the angles change. So you can have a profound effect on your functioning. You can have a profound effect on the way you feel by changing the way you behave. You could have a profound effect on the way you feel or behave by changing the way that you think and vice versa. So that would give Beck different modes of attack to come at you to try to change you if you have something that you're, you're doing or, or some malady, you know, some mental, mental pro, you know, some mental health problem. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's that model. And it's a profound model because if you start changing your behavior, even if it's just walking in the morning, um, or it's, you know, only start eating at lunch or, you know, not eating anything after eight o'clock, all of a sudden, some other things are going to change. The way your body feels is going to change the way that you're thinking about what you're doing. Hey, I, I, I have some control over myself here. I don't have to eat uh, you know, I don't have to eat danishes and muffins at freaking eight o'clock in the morning just because I walk into the, uh, 
the the the, the group area in my office and there's a freaking huge uh, you know somebody you know Dolores brought her freaking baked goods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, man, it, it, it's great. Uh, when I when I started coming into the awareness of a lot of these concepts we've been talking about, and, and I guess Doc, because as we're talking this out, I guess another thing I think I learned from the Dow um, is uh, the concept of being serious but not too serious right it's always like i would hear these things about how everything's interwoven and i'm like oh my god i gotta monitor myself like uh intensely which we do right but if i take this too extreme and i'm too serious it's almost going to give that opposite effect right of what i'm trying to do do you think i'm thinking about this the right way i think so and i think that you know not only are we part of the overreaction culture is the hyper self-monitoring, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's, uh, you know, wearing a watch that tells you how many steps you're taking or, you know, the quantified self, you know, meditation apps. There's intermittent fasting apps. I mean, I just got rid of all of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wrote something about that once that, you know, um, uh, you know, Buddha found uh, Nirvana under the Bodhi tree. He didn't need freaking meditation app to do that, right? You know, <laughs> no apps. He freaking did it without any apps. Unbelievable. <laughs> so I think I think there's a danger in the quantified self. You know, I think there's a danger with Peloton. I think there's a danger with, and there's some really cool apps, and they can be really and like just like you said, up to a limit. They're really, really, really positive. And then you can enter this zone of sort of, you know, the danger zone, the red, the red zone uh, where you become obsessed with it. Um, And that's where you really have to be careful. Um, So I, you know, you know, in theory, I have no problem with the quantified self, but I think there's a lot of people who are just kind of like going way overboard and they're losing themselves in it. Like, Hey dude, you're doing that. You took, you know, you, you, you moved your body today. It wasn't because you were looking at any, 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 anything that, you know, whether you looked at it or not, you did the thing. So I think there's, and I think that that overreaction goes hand in hand with this um, egocentricity. And this actually goes back also to what we were talking about before about you know, the world's ending with every little thing that happens. When you're in the middle of something, it becomes bigger than the event really is. When you're caught up in that moment, when you look back on it, you go, oh, so Robin Hood had a minute, GameStop had a minute, some traders got, some traders made a ton of money, some lost a ton of money. Guess what? That's the market. Yep. You know, instead of saying that, you're caught up in it and it's like, oh my God, the, the financial system is crumbling. That is egocentricity. That is thinking you're at the center of something when really we're just spinning on this tiny speck in a gargantuan entropic universe. We're not, we're, we're this big, you know, it's, we're not that big a deal. Nobody really cares that much. And it's, you, we lose sight of that when we're in that moment. So I think, I forgot how we got here, but I think that, that I think that, we're obsessed with ourselves too much. We're severe with that. So we can be really harsh. You know, back in the day, they used to call it a, a harsh superego when we become really, really judgmental of ourselves. I didn't make 10,000 steps today. I'm a failure. 
you could see that's going, you know, if you're, if you're Beck, the cognitive therapy guy, you could see that's going nowhere good right there. That overgeneralization you just made. I'm a failure because I only had 8,000 steps today. Right, 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 for sure. All right, uh, and this next quote, I, I think JJ's gonna like this one, being a uh, scientific mind. I really appreciated this one. Uh, we, are all, we are all performing research on ourselves and have results as proof. We're all scientists conducting case studies. Yeah, that's, you know, that is like, Beautiful. you know, there's, that one hits me. That one I wrote, that was the most truthful thing about myself I ever wrote. Mm-hmm. And it, because I'm a guy, I'm an idiot for so many years. I've done every wrong thing, not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> and only very gradually over a long period of time did I come to like, and now I've gotten better at it. But I, I eventually got to a point where I was like, well, that was really stupid. I probably shouldn't do that anymore, you know? And uh, the, the, the more you do that and the better you get at doing that, the more tuned that you get with yourself. And the more tuned you get with yourself, you know, there's, you, you know, people who are, uh, professional musicians can tune their instrument with in, in, in a minute with their ear. They know what the sounds are. True. They're tuned to the instrument. Well, our body is an instrument. And the more that we tune it, the more tuned that we get, the better we get at tuning it. So we can try something. I mean, you know, there was a night a couple of weeks ago where at, you know, uh, at, at nine o'clock at night, I had a big old bowl of freaking ice cream. And, you know, I don't usually do that anymore. And the next morning I felt it, you know, I'm, my body is so sensitive now to all of that stuff that I freaking knew I woke up and I woke up too early, you know, instead of waking up at like five, I woke up at like three and I thought, you know, like I didn't, you know, I didn't feel well in here. Fucking felt it, man. Oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? I, I I did the exact same thing about three weeks ago, because I I have this girlfriend. She's a anesthesiologist. She put me on this about six months ago, and uh, I felt amazing. But then I ate some ice cream. Same thing. The next morning, I it felt like I was out drinking all night or something like that. It was so weird, you know, because yep. your body is so sensitive after a while after it's clean. Exactly. Exactly. And so there was this guy, uh, Henry Stack Sullivan, and he was a great psychologist, a relational psychologist in the 50s and 60s. And he had this concept called the participant observer, where if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're, and this goes for any deep connection that you have with another person. Um, it's not just in the therapy situation. If you're in it, Right. The, the, up until that point, like the Freudians were like, you're just observing. You're not really in this situation. The, the, the clients there and you're over here, you're like kind of up here and they're sitting, you know, the other way. That's total bullshit. Like Freud was wrong. Freud was a genius. Nothing. He made huge leaps, but he was wrong. We're, we're, we're way ahead. You know, Ptolemy thought uh, the sun was the center of the of the of the universe or the earth was the center of the universe. He was wrong, but he was a genius whatever, a thousand years ago, but um, Freud was wrong. We're part of that 
interaction. We can't separate ourselves from it. We're, 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 we're you know, if they, if, if somebody says something, we might be affected by it emotionally. So he had this concept that was a huge breakthrough. It was like, listen, you're not just the observer. You're also participating in this relationship. You're a participant and observer. So that's how I feel. I, I, I stole that term from Harry Stack Sullivan. It's been used many times since to think about how we are working with ourselves, how we are thinking about ourselves. We are participating in our own lives every moment. And we are also observing what's going on. And the better we get at that, the closer we get to reality, the more sensitive we get with our own experiences, more tuned instrument. That's a, that's a huge one for me personally, because of my own journey that I went through of being not tuned to gradually figuring out how to get tuned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% uh, related to that quote. That's why I wanted to bring it up. And I think even just as far as like approaching trading and just finding your niche as a, as a trader uh, can be viewed under those lens as well. Got a few more things I want to ask you, Doc, and we'll wrap it up shortly. Uh, you're, you're the uh, behavioral uh, officer at Osprey Funds, which is in the crypto space. Uh, you, you want to just tell us a little bit about the fund and what you do there? Yeah, this is really great fun. Um, we are a young company. So I am a part of a really entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, uh, and we just very recently launched the Osprey Bitcoin Trust. It's actually been around. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's been around for a few years, but it's been a private fund, yeah. a private trust in private placement. So only accredited investors could uh, could invest, um, but very recently, uh, a week ago today, we began trading with some liquidity and multiple market makers involved yeah. um, on public in the secondary market, and uh, our goal is to uh, make uh, Bitcoin investing easy, accessible and uh, value, great value. So we're pricing ourselves uh, more like an ETF, even though we're a trust um, at, with a management fee of uh, 49 basis points, which is very, very low relative to anybody else who's out there. And you know, if you're looking for Bitcoin exposure, um, this is one way to do it with, uh, uh, with an ability to put that exposure right in your brokerage account, IRA, not have to worry about, you know, wallets and keys and long passcodes and, you know, losing that. Um, and so that's, that's what we're doing. I'm having a lot of fun with it because as a matter of fact, talking about uh, 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 taking on new challenges, right? Yeah. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm 53, right? So I could just be Mr. Comfortable. I could just be listening to Steely Dan or whatever. But meanwhile, I'm attacking and yeah. just diving into the, the, the crypto space, having a chance to apply models to uh, Bitcoin and behavioral uh, models to Bitcoin. I'm having a lot of fun with that. I get to work with incredible people. Greg King, who's the founder and CEO, is a maestro, man. I mean, he's been involved with uh, digital currencies for, you know, going back to like 2012, 2013. And he's an OG in the exchange traded uh, product space. I mean, he's built oh, nice. well over a hundred uh, exchange traded products and he knows everything nice. about it. 
Um, so really, you know, really great stuff. Great people. Scott Asacek is also a, 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 a leader at the company. Love working with those guys. Entrepreneurial environment. Great product. And we're going to be rolling out other products that are in the digital asset space. And I think we're providing, uh, uh, we, we're providing value to uh, investors as well. Yeah, love to hear it. Do, do you have any uh, general thoughts on crypto and its role in society and our culture? You know, it's an incredible time. I have no idea what's going to happen. I have suspicions and I think there is, it goes back to what we were talking about before. There is risk under conditions of uncertainty. Things, the book has not been written. So to be able to make predictions is impossible. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a possibility that, uh, a very real possibility that the, uh, uh, that Bitcoin especially, and probably other, um, other uh, assets will continue to, gain significant adoption over time. There's a risk that they won't, um, but I'm making, a, I'm making a bet by my energy and putting myself into it and by my, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think we're well on that way. I think you're seeing right now institutions begin to adopt it. Um, I think there is a lot of resistance. You know, people are very resistant to new ideas. There's an ideal, and, and as a matter of fact, I'm applying behavioral finance right now to the crypto space. Yeah. It's a freaking no-brainer. Right. And there's this one idea um, called cognitive conservatism, that we are not, per, and this is a cognitive model, we are not efficient information processors. We're mm -hmm. Commodore 64s. We're not Watson exactly. supercomputers. We're yeah. slow to process new information. And for all different types of reasons, cognitive limitations and also ego limitations were pushed back. Um, so watching the adoption occur to me within an environment of resistance and of limitation is very, very fascinating. I will write about that at some point. There's one other thing that I want to bring up that is top of mind right now. As a matter of fact, Thursday, I'm going to publish an article of this. When is this going to air? Uh, I'm going to put it out tonight. Yeah, tomorrow. I'll be probably up by tomorrow. Yeah. Sick. So this will be ahead of the article that I, that I post on Thursday, talking about uh, behavioral anomalies, right? So the general idea of a behavioral anomaly is when somebody finds a behavior, a market behavior that is not in accordance with expected utility theory. In other words, when people behave in ways that are not good, that, that are not in their own best interests. We were talking about it before. People do dumb stuff in markets all the time, right? And so really that is usual. People have a tendency to get tilted in the when they're losing money. They have a tendency instead, what, do you, what, what would be the rational thing to do within the domain of losses? Cut, right? People double down. People get tilted. People become risk-seeking instead of risk-averse. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, it goes back, again, to 79 and the publishing of prospect theory and loss aversion. Um, people also, the flip side of that coin is that people have a tendency to sell their winners too soon, yeah. right? 
you know, you're up, you have this goal, you know, the, 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 the thing, the, the rational thing to do is to pressure winners, let your winners run, cut your losers fast. People do the exact opposite. They do it over and over again. And that can be traced back to loss aversion. We hate losing. So we, we, we hate to realize our losses, both figuratively and literally. And we love winning so much that we, you know, excuse my French, but we blow our loads too soon, right? We can't help ourselves, right? We, we oh man, I got a winner. Oh, oh, I took it. Oh, it's up another 30 points. Fuck, I can't believe I did. I can't believe I sold that. How many times have you guys done that? A million times. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So here's a really interesting. So the, the, traditionally we've talked about those being anomalies when we don't act in our self-interest and they, and they were called anomalies originally because going back to traditional economic theory, traditional economic theory held that markets are efficient and people act in their own best interest, which was freaking fantasy world, right? You <laughs> was to, you know, all that stuff, you know, those guys were, 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 were crazy, right? But there's, no, there's never been an efficient market. There's never been a <laughs> market. There've been, you know, you go back to the uh, tulip mania and even further, there's right. been, the, the market has been subject to. So, um, so however, this is really interesting to me. However, there is a group of people involved with Bitcoin, of, of, of participants who are holding and they are holding and they are holding, holding, hold, the holdlers, right? They've been holding for years. As a matter of fact, as Bitcoin has increased in market value, total market value, and as its popularity and acceptance and institutionalization has increased, sellers have actually decreased. So transactions are actually turnover. It's mind boggling to think that turnover could be decreasing. So this is an anomaly to an anomaly where you would think that the behavior would be that these people who are making money, some have made tons of money on Bitcoin should be sellers according to our human nature, according to loss aversion and prospect theory and all those things, they're holding. So they are an anomaly of an anomaly. Super interesting to me. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to write about it uh, for Thursday. Uh, I'm going to title the piece, I think, Anomaly Monomaly. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Looking forward to reading it. We got ahead of it a little bit. I love it. Wow. Yeah, you guys are the first to hear about this, except for my except for my guys uh, inside Osprey. Right, 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 for sure. No, it, it really is fascinating. Oh, man. Uh, all right, Doc. I, fi- I figured out, like, a huge component of why I've been drawn to hip-hop music, at, le- at least partly, like, one of the big components, is the heavy jazz influence uh, on the sampling. Uh, you're a big fan of jazz music. What, what, what is it? What, what is it about the sound of jazz? <laughs> Nice. It's challenging. Yeah. It's emotional. Jazz is the father to hip hop. Of that, there's zero doubt. Yeah. Definitely. And you look at like Tribe Called Quest. Mm-hmm. Those guys were, you know, you know, paying great respect, not only in the sampling, but, you know, Ron Carter played on that one of those albums. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Not yeah. a joke. And, um, you know, there's a lyric in there, you know, talking about his father reminded him of bebop, 
hip hop reminded him of a bebop. I don't remember the exact quotation, but there, there's a, first of all, there's a strong um, uh, uh, Afrocentricity is the root of jazz. And so I'm uh, obviously not black, but I am Jewish. And I always felt an incredibly close kinship with that culture. Uh, Invisible Man is one of my favorite books. Uh, uh, Ralph Ellison, uh, obviously jazz music. Um, and there's a strong, that, 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 that streak is very strong. Also the playfulness, the wordplay, the sound mm -hmm. of the word. Ella Fitzgerald and scatting, right? Oh, Satchmo. So it's the same thing. They were rapping. That was the that that's the history exactly. of rap. You want the history of rap? You go back and listen to Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. That is, you know, in that cadence, man, they were on it. The rhythm, the Afro, you know, the Afro rhythm is all there. Those guys were, those guys were geniuses. The rhythm sections there, oh, bass yeah. and drums, you know, genius. You know, you look at the rhythm sections going all the way back. You look at Mingus, who was a, oh, God, who was a yeah. rhythm section bassist, composer, yeah. strong, and also strong Afrocentricity. So that root was there already. And, you know, Grandmaster Flash and all those guys going way, way back in the day, what were their parents listening to? That's where they were getting it from. They were listening to... Billie Holiday. They were listening to Mingus. They were listening to Ella Fitzgerald. So that stuff is seeped and rooted. The thing about jazz that I love is that it is uh, you're, you're 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 on the high wire without a net. You know everything there there is there is it's it's hugely flexible. It is like the Dow, right? It's incredibly flexible. It is in the present moment. It is variable. Anything can happen. It is like water. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's endless well. There's an endless well. I find something, I find a new album or a new artist, and there's a whole new vein going back years that I have never uh, yet discovered that I go down. And so it's, it's just this endless well. There were so many geniuses um, sure. that, 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 that composed and played that are American artists. They're, they're, oh. they're, they're, they're the States that that's our music. Yeah, so hip hop came right out of it. You got me started, dude. I could go another hour and a half just talking about music. <laughs> oh, me too. With jazz with you. Cause I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failed tenor sax player. So nice. Um, yeah. So Coltrane, you know, uh, Coltrane in a sentimental mood. That's one of my favorite pieces of music. Duke. Yeah. That's a great just, album that Duke. Oh my God. You know, um, yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful. And then kind of blue miles Davis. Um, great stuff. You know, just a classic, just so much beautiful music. So, so you can yeah. see, you, you know what I'm talking about? How hip hop. Came oh yeah. Same, Definitely. Same soil. No question. Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, you know, doc, like I, um, when I started digging into the samples, I was like, no wonder, like, this is what the, 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 the at least what catches my ear at first. Right. I, I appreciate the wordplay, uh, you know, the, the wittiness, the, you know, just, just the writing of it, but the, but what caught my ear is that, that sound. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Like this is, yeah, this is where it came from. It's, uh, it's incredible. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong. Um, it, it seems like that, that sound, like just this, 
it's making a resurgence almost, I think. Uh, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe I could be biased just because I like it. But I hope so. There's some great uh, artists today who are definitely fusing yeah. uh, hip hop, technology, and jazz. Uh, Shabaka. Um, he has a he has a few he has like three bands Shabaka and the Ancestors. Um, I forget the other names of his bands, but that guy, man, he's a, the the Brit the, the 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 British are killing it yeah. with new sort of new crossroads of jazz and hip hop and techno is all you know because they don't shy away from that. It's a younger group. Yeah. Oh man, there's there is some great stuff happening there. There's no question. Kamasi Washington is another one. That guy's big. Cause he has like this, he has a big sound and he has the, he has the, uh, the, 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 the heart of an arranger and a, and a composer. So he's putting together these, or, you know, orchestras and having somebody come in and sing. So he's not just, it's not just him playing the saxophone. It's him thinking about it in a way of like a big band type of thing, but 21st century. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love to see it. Doc, what, what books are you currently reading? Um, you know, I'm reading a book right now. It's about the body. I forget the name of it, but it's about the body. And uh, God, man, I can't believe I can't, I can't remember the name of it. But it's about the body. And it's about how our body works. I think it's called How, how Our Body Works or something like that. Mm -hmm. I wish I could give it a shout out. I'm, I feel so... Uh, you know, I've been been talking for. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of googling. It's a great book, mm -hmm. and it really gets into all the minutia, everything. Like, what is our, you know, like what is our body made up of, and what would that sell? You know, what 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 are the parts? How much of what, and then how much would that cost? You know, independent of the body, like everything, how everything works. Yeah. Our, oh man, I, I I'm, I'm how our body works book. Bop, bop, bop. Um, what else am I reading? Um, I, the, the, the Tao is always on, you know, the Tao, I pick it up all the time and I read one or two pages of, there's another book that, that I'm recommending for you, uh, called, um, the Tao is silent okay. by Smolian and Smolian is a, a brilliant guy. Uh, and I think he's, he's not living anymore, but he was a brilliant guy. He was a, uh, he was a lot, he was a, oh, oh, it's called The Body. The book's called The Body. Bill Bryson. This is a great book. I can't recommend it enough. A Guide for Occupants. It's really cool because he approaches it like that, like a guide, all of these different aspects going into tiny detail, really, really interesting stuff. Um, the Tao is Silent is another one that is really, really interesting book. Smolian, and he writes about the Tao from sort of a, hey, we're living in, you know, we're living today point of view and how it applies. But he was also a logician. So he talks about it, talks about the logic. Okay. Why it's, you know, what we were talking about before, why it just makes sense to, to be, uh, connected to that sort of flexible, non-judgmental uh, model. Yeah. Awesome. I'm definitely, I'm going to order that. Check that out for sure. All right. Last question. Then we'll wrap this up here, doc, obviously big into health. Give me kind of your 
workout uh, routine in a given week? Well, I've gotten to a point where I'm fairly advanced. My base is walking. Walking is fundamental. We are bipeds. We walk. I walk pretty much every day, except for when I'm really tired. Like every once in a while, I notice myself, hey, I just need to do nothing today. I do nothing. I sleep a ton. And then I wake up the next way rejuvenated. But walking is pretty much every day. Then uh, I, I do resistance training twice a week. Pretty religious about that. Um, don't need to do it more. Just don't need to. You know, I work it really hard. Uh, one day a week on Sundays, I, I really work out hard. I do pull-ups, push-ups, military press, mm -hmm. uh, kettlebell swings, some other little other dips. I got a little dip thing. Uh, like home a, gym. A full body movements uh, in, the, in the resistance training, or, or are you like splitting up days, like, okay, focusing on muscle groups certain days? I don't even think about it. Okay. I just do. Some days I don't do some things. Some days, you know, like the other day I shoveled a ton. That was my workout for the day. Yeah. That was, about, that, that was as good a workout as you're ever going to have because it's like different, you know. I really do dig the kettlebell swings though because it's got that, you know, as a matter of fact, talking about, <laughs> uh, where'd I put it? Talking about books I'm reading. This one, Pavel. Freaking, you want some hardcore? You want to shock your body? This yeah, Russian yeah. dude, Pavel, <laughs> you know, is not, he, this guy is not fucking around. Oh, sure. but, you know, he, he's into like this, you know, when you, when you do, instead of just doing like a slow motion oh, you're yeah. swinging stuff, man, your, your muscles are, you know, your muscles are really uh, respond to that, you know, and it's quickness, you know, he's got, the, exactly. he's got the leopard on the cover or whatever that is <laughs> on the cover. There's a lot of that going on. So I really dig that pull-ups are really hard. So I love those. Yeah. Um, a lot of like just body stuff, push-ups, pull-ups, where you don't really need that much equipment. Uh, a little bit of yoga thrown in there. Um, once a week, I'll run, maybe twice a week. And I just got this rowing machine, the Concept 2. I've been doing that twice a week. So I really mix it up. Um, but the base is walking. If I couldn't do everything else for three months, but I walked every morning, I'd maintain, you know, 70%. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I heard the rowing machine. I, I remember. I think it was Hugh Jackman. I listened to he he did you know he did a podcast with uh, Tim Ferriss, and uh, I think he asked him if there's one thing he could do. And I think he picked the rowing machine. He said that'd be the one one exercise he would if he had to go to a deserted island. Dude, rowing is balls out. Yeah, you can do five thousand meters on that thing as hard as you can, and you get off and you're freaking you're going like this. Your legs mm. are wobbly. Yeah, like it's so hard. Like you feel it everywhere in your body. You're tingling. You know you did good, man, and your body loves you for it. Yeah. Now, now the now the running that you do, uh, Doc, are, are you doing more um, like uh, what's the word? I'm like, like either like high intensity or you doing more like moderate. What's? It depends. When it's yeah. nice out, the the one thing that I hate about the winter is that I don't do sprints as much. But yeah, some days like I'll go for a walk, right? Early in the morning, I can't wait now. It's starting to get, days are getting longer really fast. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to get a little, like today was 40. Yeah, teasing you a little bit. <laughs> you're, a, you're a Floridian, you bastard, dude. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Dude, you can go do sprints any day. But yeah, so what I'll do is I'll go for that walk. 
take the dog really early in the morning, go up to the ball field, you know, the school. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's a football field right in the middle of it or whatever. Do, you know, do some, do some sprints, you know, run, run a hundred yards, walk a hundred yards back. Dog loves it like crazy. Chases me the whole time. Right. Right. You, you know, you do eight, 10 of those, man. That's a great workout. And then sometimes oh, I'll just run, you know, run three slow miles or, you know, get on the treadmill. Like in the winter, it's a lot more treadmill yeah. run three, four slow miles, depending on how I, how my legs feel. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the HIIT thing, how it hit height, however you say it. Yeah. That's, that's um, good stuff. That goes with the, that goes with the, um, the kettlebells. It goes with the rowing and it goes with the sprints. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love it. I, um, I, I do the same thing. I got, you know, I got one of the high schools close to my house. I'll like, I'll run the straightaways walk, you know what I mean? Uh, walk the curves, run the straightaways. Uh, yeah. Like you said, you don't need much of that and you're, uh, you're set. And I, I, yeah, I love the high intensity stuff. That's you good. What's that? That's good. I've been doing stairs cause it's been minus 50 uh, here. Yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> just up and down. Yeah, the so you're up in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> it's cold. It's cold as balls. Freaking oh dirt. yeah. Yeah. Minus 50, minus 55 was our coldest night. So, and that's Celsius. So. I'm on the ninth floor of a building, so I don't take the elevator. So I just do the stairs. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, stairs are good. That, that, takes, me back, that takes me back to like the football days, JJ. We run yeah. the yeah. We yeah. the bleachers, right? Yeah. Oh, good memories. It's a great workout, though. It's a great yeah. workout. Great workout. All right. Well, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, could you please rate and review it for us? If you'd like to trade alongside JJ, myself, and a professional group of traders, join us at microefutures.com. Dr. Perlman, tell the listeners where they can find you. Anything else you want them to know? Ospreyfunds.io backslash newsletters. Having a lot of fun doing that. If you're into crypto, you're going to get some behavioral. Um, Prime Cuts Substack. I think uh, primecuts.substack.com maybe. I'm not even sure. If you Google it, you'll probably find it. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with that. If you're on a health journey, you want to get healthier, you want to be inspired. Uh, if you want to email me, feel free to at P Perlman, P P E A R L M A N at gmail.com. Uh, or, you know, I might not get back to you for like a week, but I'll get back to you for sure. And thoughtfully, not just like, Hey, great to hear from you. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh man. JJ parting words. Oh, Doc, what a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure. Great energy. I wish I were, I wish I, wish I was on the desk at where you were working. <laughs> would, you know, seriously, I really miss, I miss New York so much. And, you know, that high intensity uh, vibe that, you know, you get a bunch of smart people in a room and they just create, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Guys, this August, September, the world's going to open up. New York is awesome in September. Oh, yeah. You guys are there. I take you out to dinner. There's no question. We have a great time. Oh, my man. Doc, Let me know. Seriously. Appreciate it. Uh, and tackle what JJ said, the, the energy just so infectious, dropping uh, jewels, you know, the whole podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, fellas. It was a total pleasure. Um, I can't thank you enough just for having me. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So for Dr. Phil Perman, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the grill of House Street. You stop, so. Peace.
Peace. <laughs> that was great, guys. Sorry if I just kept talking.